This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Of late, I've been a little obsessed with both classical and experimental music. Not so much the music per se, but rather books about the subject of classical and experimental music. Uh, Kyle Gans, No Such Thing as Silence, Oliver Sacks' Musicophilia, Alex Ross's The Rest is Noise. I've been curious about their impact on our minds and on our world, on their ability to provoke, on the pivotal role they play in daily human interactions. Last year, at the Singapore Writers' Festival, I happened to attend a panel discussion called The Sound and the Fury, How Sound Provokes, and in it, three sound experts talked about the ways in which they have plumbed the depths of sound to arouse, to rebel, and to seek peace. One of those experts was Nancy Perloff. we go okay good like this uh, my name is Nancy Perloff uh, I am curator of modern and contemporary collections at the Getty Research Institute and at the Getty I work on acquisitions of collections of archives of books of photographs uh, I do exhibitions and I write books and articles and do lectures about my work you're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. Now, throughout this episode, Nancy will be making references to various people and pieces of music, and I'll be sure to play you some samples of the things she talks about. But first, here's Nancy telling us just what she was presenting during that panel at the Singapore Writers' Festival. As far as sound goes, uh, particularly, I'm on this panel called The Sound and the Fury, uh, and I will be playing video clips from a nearly six-hour piece, a nearly six-hour musical work called The Well-Tuned Piano. Uh, Its longer title is The Well-Tuned Piano in the Magenta Lights, and I can explain that last part uh, in a minute. But this is a work of improvisation. So you have to imagine that Lamont Young, the composer, performer of this work, sits at the piano and plays for nearly six hours without a break. Um, He plays a piano that has been rebuilt. It's a Busendorfer Grand that's been rebuilt to have an extended bass register. Um, And it is tuned in just intonation. And I won't go into the technical parts of that unless you ask me. But suffice to say that when you hear the the music, you are immediately aware that the intervals sound different. The perfect fifth isn't what we think of as a perfect fifth. It's adjusted. So it has a very unusual sound. And he improvises on chords, on uh, what he calls kind of cloud-like textures. Um, It's a work that he started in 64 as an improvisatory work that was about 40 minutes. And then he built up over time so that by 2000, it became this almost six-hour piece that he performed in what was called a dream house 
context. And the dream house is basically a space that contains special lighting, a kind of magenta light, mobiles, and the light and visual part is all done by his wife and partner, Marion Zazila, so that this becomes a piece that is highly meditative. The floors are carpeted, people are welcomed in, they often stay for hours, they lie on their backs, and they listen, and what they hear is resonance. It's these repeated tones on the piano that are then embellished with arpeggiation. But this is a minimal work. And by minimal or minimalist, I mean there is a limited pool of pitches that come back over and over again in slightly different versions. So Lamont Young is known by many people as the founder of musical minimalism. piano work, you'll hear the repeated sounds, the drones, the sustained pitches that are embellished. And sometimes he's just playing one hand on the piano. It's also interesting that his background is not piano. He was a virtuoso saxophonist, a jazz saxophonist, whose incredible finger work that you see on the piano, he taught himself from playing as a jazz saxophonist in Los Angeles. And I'm assuming the piece is structured in a way that it's not meant to be experienced in completion. People can walk in and out as and when they please. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think his goal is that there be a kind of spiritual component to the work, the magenta light, the dim lighting, but the magenta, the the very imperceptibly moving mobiles with their shadows cast on the wall. I think he wants people to be there as long as they would like to be there, but there are no rules. And, And how do audiences react to that? We're so used to, especially when it comes to music and sound, we're so used to a certain structure that has been imposed upon upon us by whatever, by film, by radio, (laughs) by popular music. Mm -hmm. So how do audiences react to something that's so structureless? Yeah, I should say just briefly that he's very influenced by North Indian music and has learned the, you know, ragas. And raga actually influences some of the arpeggiation that he does in this work. Audiences react surprisingly in a surprisingly kind of meditative and subdued way. They come in once they see that other people are lying on their backs, looking up, closing their eyes, letting the kind of resonance and the drones engulf their body. It becomes a very physical experience. And you are 
participating physically as much as you are orally. And let me just make a comparison between this piece, the well-tuned piano, and a piece I also know very well, which is also somewhat meditative, but more participatory. Uh, In the Lamont Young, people don't participate in the sense that they make sounds. They participate in the sense that they let it physically engulf them, and they move into kind of higher spiritual realms. I think people really do. Another work by David Tudor, the great pianist and composer of live electronic music, is called Rainforest Four. And that's another work that goes on for days. You dip in, you, unlike the Lamont Young work, actively participate. There are sculptures, there are found objects all over a space, a black box, whatever it is. There is electronic sound being fed through these found objects, which are highly, highly resonant, into the space. The visitors, the audience, walk through the space. The objects are lit. It's very dramatic. And then you touch, you bite, you put things like an oil drum, you go inside the oil drum and you feel the sound around you. So that's a highly participatory work, but similar to Lamont Young's in that it has no beginning or end. There really is not a beginning or end. There are middles, there are... So we're talking mostly now about sound as kind of meditative, but also as unifying. Because in both the Lamont Young well-tuned piano and in Rainforest, you're quite affected by the other people you see. You see people lying down. Oh, I could lie down too. It's okay for me to do that. Or lots of people are walking around. Because what happens in the Lamont Young with this just intonation and the drones and the resonance is the sounds differ. No matter where you are in the room, if you move, you hear something new. You hear a different harmonic. You hear a different resonance. So there are people lying and not moving, and there are others who are actually walking around. But all of this is very unifying, I think. It feels like we do, we do badly without direction when we go to these things. I mean, we're taught if you're in a theater, you do this. If you're in a cinema, you do this. If you're in a bookshop, you do this. If you're going to see a piano recital, for example, you sit down and stay quiet. And how do people do without that kind of direction? I mean, in Lamont Young's case, you walk in to a dimly lit space, like a loft space. There are, there are handouts that describe the piece in great musical and technical detail beyond what anybody could quite understand, what the drones are, what the symmetries are between the drones, how the drones are generated electronically, all these things. You take your shoes off. So a mood is set right away by the handout and by taking your shoes off and by coming into this very dimly lit space where there's- Well, it already creates a sense of discomfort. Yes. Yes. Almost immediately. Why well, discomfort? Because I think a lot of people aren't used to taking their shoes off in a public space. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For one. I never, again, I mean, I may be talking from my own experience, but most people I talk to who experience the dream house, they call it the dream house, where it's electronic sound, where it's not the piano. Um, they call it the dream house. And my experience talking to people or reading critics who write about it is people are absolutely spellbound. 
I mean, it's unlike anything they've ever experienced. Maybe there is some discomfort, you know, with well, physical discomfort, discomfort. in a good way. Oh, yeah, in a yeah, good way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about sound as provocation. Because I think that's something, uh, provocation and protest, actually, because that's something that I find incredibly fascinating. Yes. Because it doesn't just necessarily permeate uh, from the classical sphere, but also from the pop sphere as well, as in popular culture. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to music and performance as protest and provocation, in your experience, how have you found the classical approaches and the pop approaches to differ? Mm. Well, I'm going to be very honest and say I am not a pop music person, so I'm not going to be able to talk about that with any great authority other than my recent exposure to this extraordinary Brazilian musician, composer, writer, Caetano Veloso. Eu fico imaginando nós dois Eu fico ali sonhando acordado Juntando o antes, o agora e o depois And I think in that, there is protest in his music. He lived under the dictatorship in Brazil in the 60s, and actually he was banned from from Brazil and had to exile to London and live there for a few years, and his songs are sometimes protest. For me, I don't know the language, I don't know Portuguese, so there's a limit to my understanding, but I feel a certain discomfort because I think he is challenging norms. It doesn't really fit as just straight pop music. It doesn't totally fit as... Um, it feels anxious. Kind of art music. It feels anxious. <laughs> and then he sometimes gets up. He'll sit and play the guitar. And occasionally he'll get up and walk across the stage. That's uncomfortable. I don't know if he's if that's intended as protest. I don't think so. But there's some discomfort. But let me Well, there's you, some provocation there as there's well. There's provocation. Why would a musician who plays a guitar and has a kind of tropicalia or, you know, tropicalismo is, is really the way a lot of the music is described. Bossa Nova was very influential on him. But then he occasionally gets up and walks across the stage in with movements that are unlike any I've ever seen. And I, it's provocative. It is definitely, it's sexual. He, it's very sexual. I mean, he, even in his 70s, is an extraordinarily good-looking man. And so there's something very musical, sexual, and provocative about standing up with the guitar or he'll put the guitar down and walking across or moving across the stage, someone in their mid-70s who's still physically obviously very fit and able to do that sends, I mean, the, the you know, the girls are swooning. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. But let me say another thing with the art music that's kind of one of the pinnacles of, of provocation was John Cage's Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. Exactly. And even if it's been talked about and talked about, you have to talk about it because nothing like that had ever happened. And David Tudor, who I just mentioned, is the composer of Rainforest 4, was the pianist who played Four Minutes and 33 Seconds in, I want to say, 1952, but you'd better double-check that date. But there they were in Woodstock, you know, in an open area, an open, it was in the summer, it was in August, I think, and David Tudor simply sat at the piano with a stopwatch, and, you know, at the end of each movement, each being timed, he would open and then close the, the lid of the piano. And that was an ultimate provocation because, as you say, people are very uncomfortable. When does the piece start? 
and at Woodstock, no less. You know, I don't think that's right, but it was in upstate New York. It was an, it was in upstate New York, and you can look it up. There's actually a wonderful book, short book that you can read. I read it about Kyle Gann. Yes, that's right. It's brilliant. Check check Kyle Gann because he talks right away about it. brilliant book. It had a huge impact on me. But I mean, he traces, as you know, all the different sources. Where did this come from? It's not as though it just came out of nowhere. This was Cage working on ideas that had been, you know, occupying him for for years. Absolutely. But but that sort of provocation, it feels like it's a flash in the pan. And I say that only because it's a button that you can't re-push. You do it once. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I agree with that or not. Maybe so. Maybe it it, it was a kind of happening in a way. I mean, it was. I, I hate that word because that's not <laughs> one of my favorite. And I'm not a big Alan Capro fan, so I wouldn't want to connect Cage to Capro that way. But you're right. That's. I mean, it it, it would never be the same the second time. Exactly. Or at least our reactions to it would never be would the same never the second be the time. Same, unless we were people who had never heard of it and never heard about it. And I'm amazed at how many people, even today, as musicians, or I'll say, well, you know, David Tudor, he's the one who played four minutes and 33 seconds. And a few people will kind of, oh, yeah, many people still haven't heard. But you're absolutely right. People now, though, I will say, because we have the score at the Getty, we have David Tudor's version of what he played in 52, I think 52. Museum after museum borrows that score. There is an absolute fascination with that piece, with the score. With the score? Yeah. To which I have to ask the question, has it then become increasingly difficult to provoke? Mm, you're not any longer just talking about four minutes and 33 seconds. No, but in you're your, saying more broadly. More broadly. Yeah. Um, provoke, you mean the discomfort we've been talking about? Correct. By using sound and music, I feel, and when I say that, I mean, I think the same applies for film and literature as well. It becomes, I don't like to use the word shock, but it comes, it becomes harder and harder to shock people and thus get them out of a sense of comfort. And that's what provocation should do. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if the same applies in your experience to sound and music and mm-hmm. as, as it does with film and literature, because people keep trying to push that envelope with mm-hmm. uh, art and film and literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's think in music. I mean, I think... Okay, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Has there been anything recently that you have seen that mm-hmm. has completely provoked you, that has blown your mind? Provoked in a positive sense. In a positive sense, of oh, course. in a positive sense, in I see. In a positive see. sense, blown my well, mind. Well, actually, you know what? Even negative sense could be a good thing, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I I don't think we, sh- we need to limit ourselves to the 20 and 21st century. You know, I live in Los Angeles and we have really one of the great orchestras in the world, the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And recently I heard a performance of Mahler's Ninth, and I'd never heard it performed live. And it's 90 minutes. So no intermission. You just start to finish 90 minutes. And it is provocative. It's very provocative because you don't know how to understand form. How does form work in this piece? You read the program notes. The program notes say, well, it's an extended sonata form. 
The first movement is an extended sonata form. Can you hear that extended sonata form? Can you hear the themes? Do you hear things return? You know, so I, as a musicologist, am constantly challenging myself. What's happened to the form by the time we get to the last movement? Am I hearing themes that I heard from the beginning? So it's not a comfortable place. The whole time I listen, as, as extraordinarily beautiful as it is, it's not a comfortable place because of what happens over time. And because of my intellectual kind of curiosity, exactly, not having heard the piece before and trying constantly to challenge myself in terms of form, as I said, but also style and how does this compare to Mahler's first and is it similar to the second and which do I prefer? And so my mind is, is kind of racing. I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for. No, I, but I can see where you're coming from because I think even when you're looking at an old work or a classic work, yeah. uh, music, I think like, say, a lot of foreign literature is a constant act of translation. And so listening to it in 2016 or 2015 is going to be very different from listening to it in 1952. Mm-hmm. And therefore you could have a different reaction to it, mm-hmm. a different act of provocation, possibly with that sense of, or that modern interpretation, which is good, I suppose. It's the way of looking at it. And I mean, with Mahler, you know, Mahler is such a um, fan de siècle composer. I mean, the kind of, the, the um, both unbelievable experimental quality of Mahler. I mean, where, you know, you've got a full orchestra and there are all these parts where you're just hearing oboe and flute or clarinet and bassoon. I mean, there are all these little solo passages. So he's incredibly inventive writing for orchestra, unlike anything that had ever been done before. And yet at the same time, it's this anxiety and this this sense of kind of desperation that you feel with this fin de siècle moment that he was writing, and even with the last symphony. And so you're very aware of your own century and your own turn of the century. And even now in 2016, you know, how does that kind of fin de siècle resonate with then and now, and I think we think about that a lot. Uh, one last question for you. When it comes to interpretations and, 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 and modern interpretations, uh, where do you stand on uh, precisely that, on this, on, on, on reinterpretations, on, on breaking out of the comfortable performance, on the performance that's been tried and true, but yet good, that isn't mm-hmm. broken mm-hmm. in any way, that it's mm-hmm. perfect. What's your stand on that? Mm. Uh, so can you give me an example? Um, you mean, say, if a... In a more traditional sense, if an orchestra, you know, brings back, uh, I don't know, um, Stravinsky. Yes, exactly. And and does the Rite of Spring. And does something and And does radical. something different with the Rite of Spring. Well, actually, uh, it, what's been very interesting, I'm very, very interested in interpretation. And... One of the things that's been fascinating in Los Angeles, going, you know, with the LA Phil, for example, is that we had the Finnish conductor, Esabeka Salonen, and now we have a Venezuelan conductor, utterly different, two totally different kinds of interpretations. And one of the things I'm very, very interested in is what happens when you have a new interpretation 
of a work like The Rite of Spring, which we all have a kind of sense of Boulez conducting The Rite of Spring with great precision and, you know, very strict rhythms, and he's not at all romantic. I mean, it's about as far from romantic as you could imagine. It's almost scientific, and that's what we love with Boulez, right? And also when the LA, well, when, when an institution like the LA Phil comes along and if they reinterpret it, you have an entire generation that will only know it as that, right. which could be problematic. It could be problematic, but, I mean, this relates to the whole issue of why it is that some composers, modern composers, let's say like Debussy, like Ravel, like Bartok, like Stravinsky, are not performed very frequently. And I always find that very surprising. I mean, you know, we have, you know, Wagner is performed ad infinitum, every overture, every, you know, and so forth. Um, And yet, say Stravinsky, who I consider to be one of the great composers of all times, is rarely done except for the Rite of Spring. So there's several things going on here. Number one, people who do hear the Rite of Spring in Dudamel's performance, for example, which is very expressive and very emotive and not at all the scientific kind of precise boulesque. That's the only Rite of Spring they know, and that's also the only Stravinsky they know. Because Stravinsky, other than the Rite of Spring and Petrushka, not even Petrushka, the Rite of Spring and maybe one other work, and I can't even think what, is hardly ever performed, at least in the United States. Maybe it's different here, maybe it's different in Europe. I mean, that may be. So we have two problems. One, we have a new version of the Rite of Spring. Now, I don't actually consider that a problem because Dudamel is a brilliant musician. Let people, as long as they like it and are enthralled and find it rhythmically dazzling, they can't even count it because it's so dazzlingly complex. That's fine. To me, a much greater problem is what isn't brought back. And, and all the Stravinsky that isn't performed Why is that? And what do we, as music lovers, do about that? And what responsibility do we take to try and encourage more performances of Stravinsky and Bartok? Another example, rarely, at least in the U.S., rarely done. Nancy Perloff has a brand new book out. It's called Explodity, Sound, Image and Word in Russian Futurist Book Art. And it's about the artists' books made in Russia between 1910 and 1915, which were unique in their fusion of the verbal, the visual and oral. These were books that were meant to be read, to be seen and to be heard. You should definitely go check it out. You can find it on Amazon.com. This has been Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.